Well, our Father, we are we reminded of uh, the men of Issachar. They were part of uh, David's men and uh, one of the tribes. But it was said of them in 1 Chronicles 12 that the men of Issachar were men who understood the times. And they knew what Israel should do. Now, we look at our times and we look at what's going on around uh, the world and we look at what's going on around our nation and we see that um, there's a lot of chaos, there's a lot of confusion. We see that certain foundations are crumbling. We, we see, quite frankly, a lot of insanity. But we thank you that that's not all we see. We thank you that there is a unseen hand that is controlling the events of the whole world. We thank you for your providential care. We thank you that you are the God who has a plan for the ages. We thank you that history is going somewhere. And you're overseeing it and you're watching it. And when we look at the events that are on the earth right now, and we hear the news and we hear the radio and all of this, we, 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 take a, we take not just that view, we take a higher view because we understand that you are up to something. And we also understand that as things get worse and worse, and we believe that things will get worse and worse, just because we read the Bible, and we see where history is going, man can't make things better. Only you can. And men are drunk on their own ideas and their own plans and their own programs. But the problems that we see and the problems that break our hearts and the human suffering and the breakdown of homes and families and drug use and all of these different things, there's, there's not a plan devised by man that can fix any of it. These are much, much deeper problems. And as things get worse and worse, it, it's very easy for us to get discouraged and depressed. But if we have a right perspective, we ought to be more optimistic than we have ever been. Because as things get worse and worse, some people are going to start thinking and some people's eyes are going to be open and they're going to start looking to you. What great days of opportunity, what great days for ministry we are living in. When life is, uh, when life is easy, People are not interested in you. But when, when, when life begins to fall apart, oftentimes people begin to look for answers because they have no answers and they're hopeless. And we thank you that in the midst of all of this craziness, in the midst of all this insanity, we have the word of God. And you've given us a great certainty. And you have given us, uh, you offer us a great peace. We study our Bibles again tonight because we have nowhere else to go. We thank you that this Bible is the word of Christ. Every word is the word of Christ. Some of us are Bibles, the New Testament, the words of Christ are in red, but to be consistent, every word in that Bible ought to be read because it's all the word of Christ. And so tonight we ask that you would give us perspective. We ask that you would balance us out. Perhaps we've gotten our life out of perspective, but perhaps we've gotten overwhelmed with where we are. Perhaps we find ourselves in a hole and we don't see any way to get out of it. Uh, there may be a guy in here tonight that's absolutely desperate, and, and, and he is, he's never been this desperate before in his life. We thank you that, that you are there and that you are available. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We thank you for your power. We thank you that you can change lives. We thank you that you can change circumstances with a word. I think in Revelation about what's going to happen in the last days, and, and you continue to use that phrase, in one hour, in one hour, in one hour, in one hour, things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. But to those who call upon you, in one nanosecond, everything changes for the good. So give us perspective tonight. Give us balance. May, we, may your Holy Spirit take the words which we study tonight and apply them to every hurting heart, 
to every fearful heart, to every anxious heart, to every heart that is pressured. And relieve that pressure and relieve that stress and give us hope. You, you, you said to the captives, you said, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans not for your welfare, not for your calamity, but for your welfare to give you a future and a hope. That's true of every guy in here that will turn to you. Open our eyes now. Give us the, the, the minerals, the vitamins, the antioxidants of the word to strengthen us and to give us courage. And we would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, shock of shock, we're still in Ephesians 6. We're working our way through Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20, the section on spiritual warfare. C.S. Lewis said that there are two mistakes you can make about Satan. The first is to not believe that he exists, and that doesn't bother him. That's just fine with him. It doesn't bother him at all if you don't believe in his existence. Because if you don't believe in his existence, he's got you right where he wants you because you don't believe in the supernatural. And he will play you like a piano even as you don't believe in him. The second mistake you can make about Satan is that you have an unhealthy obsession with him and see him everywhere and you are consumed and obsessed with his power and his ability to deceive. That's way out of line and that's way out of balance. We find the balance in Ephesians chapter 6. And as Paul is completing this, this tremendous epistle that we've been in for a while, and we'll probably be in for a little longer, Paul, Paul writes some words at the conclusion of, um, uh, of, of this book. And it's a very practical warning shot. You know, the scripture says, let him who stands take heed lest he fall. And what is that all about? Well, let's explain in Ephesians 6, where we read these words. He says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. See, that's where you begin when you talk about spiritual warfare. You don't begin with the enemy. You don't begin with Satan. You don't begin in studying him and his devices. Where you begin is in the, you begin with the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Uh, it seems to me, I'll be honest with you guys, it seems to me whenever we do this Bible study, and I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. It seems to me whenever we do this Bible study, we study the same things over and over and over again. And what I mean by that is we're always studying the sovereignty of God. We're always studying the power of God. We're always talking about the fact that God is in control. Now, the reason we're always studying that is that I see that pretty much on every page of the Bible. God is in absolute control and God is sovereign and God is great. And this, and this, this Bible is about our great God and his son, Jesus Christ. And it's about who he is and what he has done and the fact that no matter where we are in life, he is in charge and he is in control. That's the glue that holds our lives together. So be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12. Some translations say, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Other translations would say, um, and I just absolutely blanked. Who has an English Standard Version? Oh, we wrestle not. What's the Jerusalem Bible say? All right. Yeah, same thing. Flesh and blood, human enemies. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, or we, uh, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There is an unseen battle that is going on all around us. If you recall the uh, story of uh, the king of Aram who was attacking the king of Israel, and the prophet Elisha would read the thoughts of the king of Aram from afar. The king of Aram was going to go attack the king of Israel, 
Elisha would understand what he was going to do because the Spirit of God would reveal it to him. He would send word to the king of Israel. And when the king of Aram went to attack the king of Israel, the king of Israel was there waiting for him and would be victorious against him. Happened several times. Finally, the king of Aram said, which of you is a traitor? Um, they said, none of us, but the man of God, read your mind, read your thoughts. They're revealed to him. He's in Dothan. So they made an all-night march to Dothan. They surrounded the city. They were on the hills. Uh, Elisha's servant went out the next morning, saw the army, uh, panicked, went and got Elisha and said, there are more of us than there are of them. Uh, no, he said, look, and he showed him, and he was panicked. And Elisha said, don't fear, there are more of us than there are of them. And there's two of them, and there's hundreds and hundreds of them. And that made no sense to the servant. And then Elisha prayed and said, Lord, open his eyes that he might see. And suddenly he saw the armies of God. Suddenly he saw the angels of God. Suddenly he saw the chariots of fire. So there is an unseen battle that is going on around us all the time. That's why this says, for, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. There are spiritual forces. We, uh, we are in battle with Satan. We are in battle with Satan's uh, uh, minions. Charles Hodges, the great theologian, wrote this. He said, if Satan is really the prince of the powers of darkness, the ruler and god of this world, if he is the author of physical and moral evil, the great enemy of God and of Christ and of his people, full of cunning and malice, if he is constantly seeking whom he may destroy, seducing people into sin, blinding their minds and suggesting evil and skeptical thoughts, if all this is true, then to be ignorant of it or to deny it or to enter into this conflict as though it was merely a struggle between the good and bad principles in our own hearts is to rush blindfold to destruction. This is a real battle and it's a real war. Kent Hughes follows up on that and he writes this word. The immediate implication, and he's speaking of verses 6, uh, chapter 6, 10, 11, and 12. The immediate implication is that Satan is terribly powerful. And, and, and in 12, we got those terms. We struggle against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Satan was the chief angel. He rebelled against God, took a third of the angels with him. And this is Satan's organizational chart. Satan can only be in one place at one time, but he has his, um, he has his bureaucracy. And they are at work to destroy the people of God and the work of God and the plan and the purpose of God. And because you name the name of Christ, that means you're involved in the battle. So, Kent Hughes goes on and says, the immediate implication is that Satan is terribly powerful. To be sure, he does not possess anything near the power of God. But in God's inscrutable arrangement, he temporarily dominates and drives the world. He's the God of this world, of the earth, which on the whole is separated from God's grace. Though the devil can be in only one place at a time, with his myriads of malignant spirits, he imitates God's omnipresence and omnipotence. Think about that. Satan can only be in one place at one time. But he has all these co-workers, all these minions, this organizational chart, and as they are dispersed, they try to be in all places at all times as God is, but they can't quite pull it off. Uh, Satan desires to be God more than anything. His cosmocrats, it's a great term. His bureaucrats, his cosmocrats that are throughout the world are strategically positioned in the world's culture, both secular and ecclesiastical. Their lieutenants are likewise well-schooled and well-placed so as to best spread their cancer. Uh, the consensus of Scripture is that this world is the cosmos diabolicus, the devil's world. John tells us in 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil. That is true. Uh, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. But who is in control of the evil one? God. As Martin Luther said, and we've quoted it many times, the devil is God's devil. The devil is God's pit bull. He's on a chain. He can't go any further than that chain. He can't make a move without God's permission. Yet he's there, and yet he is active, and he's active for a season. You say, man, this spiritual battle stuff, 
this gets old. How long, how long am I going to be in spiritual battle? Until the moment Jesus takes you home. This is a long battle. We're in it for the duration. So this is kind of frightening. This is kind of scary. Uh, actually, um, we're to be aware of it, but we're not to be frightened. We're not to be afraid. We're not to be intimidated. Because we, we, we begin with, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's all a matter of perspective. If you think Satan and God are equals, then you're in trouble. But they're not equals. God is greater. John Newton, the great hymn writer, wrote these words. Though many foes beset you round, and feeble is your arm, your life is hid with Christ and God beyond the realm of harm. Weak as you are, you shall not fade, or fainting shall not die. Jesus, the strength of every saint, will aid you from on high. Though unperceived by mortal sense, faith sees him always near. A guide, a glory, a defense. What have you to fear? And surely as he overcame and triumphed once for you, so surely you that love his name shall in him triumph. We're in a battle, but we're not by ourselves. Tonight, I want to handle three words out of verse 12, and the three words are this. We wrestle not. We wrestle not. Or, if you're in the New American Standard Version, it'll say this. uh, Our struggle is not. Our struggle is not flesh and blood. A lot of times, we see um, uh, human leaders, we see political leaders, We see religious leaders that are religious, but they don't know the Lord. Uh, They deny the truth of the scriptures. Um, There is a a writer, he's really getting up in age if he's still alive now. Uh, um, Gosh, is it John Spong, who is the Anglican bishop out of England? He writes all this stuff. He, 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 he's for years, he's been writing, Jesus is not the son of God. The scriptures cannot be trusted. All the, you know, Great religious leader. He doesn't know Christ. He doesn't know the word of God. He doesn't know the power of God. Uh, he, he has taken a lot of people down the wrong path, the wrong way. So we see these different human leaders that have influence. And we look at them and we get angry and we get bothered. And we, oh my gosh, they're doing this. But you see, what we forget is we wrestle not against flesh and blood. They are not the enemy. They are not the problem. What they need is to be redeemed and to come to Christ. But there is an unseen presence that is influencing them. Uh, there, is, uh, there, there are these satanic beings that are working the halls of Congress. Why is it that you, you, will, see, you will see people that, that love the Lord and you will see people that have a desire to make things right? I remember hearing Ray Steadman talk about this 40 years ago. He said, I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people that have run for office, they want to turn things around, their, their hearts are right, they know the Lord, and they get elected and they get into the halls of power and they are completely frustrated. And what they want to do here, they can't quite off. He goes, why is it? It's because they're not wrestling against flesh and blood. They are in spiritual warfare. Um, uh, these rulers, these powers, the world forces of this darkness, uh, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. They're, they're uh, in civil government at a local level, uh, at, a county, at a county level, at a state level. Uh, they're at uh, a national level. Uh, they're in the education system. Uh, they're in elementary schools. They're in, um, they're in junior high schools, middle schools. They're in high schools. They're in the university system. That's why if you're a Christian who believes in the Word of God, you're going to have a real hard time getting something called tenure in the academic world. Why? Well, because, you, 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 you're, hey, you're in the wrong camp. Now, at the same time, we, we talk about these people are there and these bureaucracies and all that. But, but, but then again, don't forget this. The Lord also has his people. Uh, a number of years ago, we had something called the moral majority. The majority has never been moral. <laughs> Have they? Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. Just know we're in the minority. Now, also know this. As we're in the minority, 
That doesn't mean we're defeated. Go over to, where are you, in Ephesians? Go over uh, two books to the right. Ephesians, Philippians, go to Colossians. We'll start with verse 3 and we'll go down to verse 6. I'm in chapter 1 of Colossians. Paul says, We give thanks to God, the, fa- to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Now watch this. The gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel is always growing. People are always coming to Christ. God always has his people. There's always a remnant where you are, where God has assigned you to your post. You may feel that you were outnumbered, and you are outnumbered, but you are not alone and you are not by yourself. You're salt and you're light. And you're in warfare. We wrestle not. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Uh, I was reading old William Grinnell again this week. You know, the old Puritan pastor who wrote the 1,200 pages on the 10 verses? And I was reading Grinnell on his section about, on this verse, we wrestle not. And he took about 800 pages. He took about eight pages just on we wrestle not. I couldn't read it all at one sitting. It was too much to take in. And and he had a section. His first section was how not to wrestle. And then his second section was how you should wrestle. It, It was incredible. It was just incredible. It was almost too much to assimilate in one sitting. In fact, I broke it up and I, I, I read the first part on one day and the I had to wait till the next day to read the second part. I just, it was just too much. It was just too much to take in. It was just, I couldn't absorb that much truth in one city. Amazing stuff. Um, there was a story in the news this week about wrestling. I don't know if you saw it or not. But in the state of Iowa, and not a lot happens in the state of Iowa, it's cold in Iowa. My best friend lives in Des Moines, so I'm just kidding around. But in Des Moines right now, it's cold. And there's not a lot happening in Iowa except wrestling. And they're having the state wrestling tournament. And you read about this boy who was in the state wrestling tournament. And he had a great record. And he's on his way. And he's only two or three matches away from winning the state title. And this boy decided that he could not go ahead and wrestle his next opponent. And the reason he couldn't do it is that uh, it was a girl. And I've been watching some of the uh, articles written about this kid. Uh, There's a guy named uh, Rick Riley who's pretty good. uh, He's a great writer. But he just just took that kid over the coals. And said, what what does religion have to do with wrestling? Well, this kid, this kid, what is he, 12, 13, 14 years old? This kid actually, he's a Christian. He actually has convictions. He actually has principles. And as I was thinking about this this week, I was, and, and you know, then of course, you know, you have the girl, and then I actually saw a photo of her and her father. And I thought to myself, now here's, here's what I'm thinking. Let's just change the scenario. I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking it's 2 a.m. Just use your imagination. It's 2 a.m. The father gets up in the middle of the night, gets some water, sees something in the living room. He can't quite see the lights. He goes over there, and there's his daughter. And she's in a one-piece spandex, low-cut. That's all she's got on. And there's a 15-year-old boy there with his hand up, arm up between her legs, and his other hand all over her breast. How would that father react? I don't know. How would most normal fathers react? They would then put their arms between the boy's legs. Uh, yeah, they'd be grappling with the situation. So you just contextually, can we say this? 
This boy has been mocked. Why is he being mocked? Because he doesn't think it's right for a boy, 13, 14-year-old boy, to wrestle a girl. And he's mocked. Uh, <laughs> we just continue to watch a nation deteriorate. And the further you get away from the Word of God, the further you get away from common sense and decency. What father would let a daughter be... Any of you guys ever wrestle? Okay. It's beyond belief to put a girl in that and to encourage her and, and, and the impropriety. And you say, you say well, Steve, you, you have no biblical grounds for this. <sighs> well, I think I do. I think I do. Uh, men, are to be, men are to protect women. They're not to paw women. They're not to take indecencies with women. The younger men are to treat, treat the younger women as sisters, the Bible says. You see? This, uh, all, all I'm saying to you, we're in this passage here about wrestling. And this major news story this week about this kid who doesn't think it's right to wrestle a girl. The kid has standards. He's a Christian. He's mocked. He's ridiculed. What does religion have to do with wrestling? What father in his right mind would let some 13, 14, in a weekend tournament, five, six matches, let different boys paw all over their daughter? We've lost our minds. We have lost all sense of civility and uh, morality, biblically. We've just lost it. And the culture continues to slide, and the culture continues to lose its mind. When you read Romans chapter 1, and it talks about what happens when people deny that God exists, and they begin to worship the creation instead of the creature. Uh, they begin to worship the creation instead of the creator. In other words, when you're more concerned about your carbon footprint than you are about giving glory to God, you're screwed up. And then certain things begin to happen. You just can, as long as you suppress the truth, you're going to get more and more screwed up. And, and, and your, whole, your whole life, your whole value system, your decision-making process, you just continue to get worse and worse and worse. The worst thing that could ever happen to you is for God to let you have your way. And what happens in Romans, there is a, there is a downward spiral where God will give you over. If you want to continue to reject him and reject his truth, this happens to nations, it happens to individuals. He will give you over. He will give you over. He will give you over. And it says in there, he will give you over to a reprobate mind. A reprobate mind is a mind that doesn't reason. It's a mind that doesn't think and doesn't lose, use logic. And as we look around where we are as a nation, and we look around at the whole world, the world's insane. And we see insanity in our nation. We see it everywhere. What's happened? Well, we've lost the fear of the Lord. There's no fear of the Lord. Interestingly enough, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. By the way, what is wisdom? Here's a synonym for wisdom. If someone has wisdom, you might say, you know, Joe, you know, he's got a lot of wisdom. He's got a lot of common sense. Well, where do you get it? Fear of the Lord. If you meet someone who's not a Christian and they seem to have wisdom, I will tell you this. You look back up to their father or their grandfather and there's biblical Christianity somewhere. Maybe they don't know Christ, but what they're living in, you know what they're doing? They're living off the spiritual capital of the past. Now, we have, we've had spiritual capital in this nation, and I'm not saying we've been perfect, and you know I'm not saying that. But there's been a Christian presence. There's been great evil in this nation historically, but historically when there was great evil, biblical Christians took it on and tried to make it right. This is not heaven. This is a fallen world. It's a fallen nation. But Christians would rise to the occasion. They would try to take on certain uh, uh, injustices that were occurring. But what's happened is we've gotten further and further away from the Word of God. We've had a certain amount of spiritual capital, and we're using it up. 
and we're losing it. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. So I've been thinking about wrestling. I didn't wrestle in, uh, I didn't wrestle in high school. Um, I did pro wrestling when I got out of high school. That, that was supposed to be humorous. I got no response from that whatsoever. Yeah. No, I, uh, um, I remember one time uh, in off-season from football and basketball in the spring, I, and I wasn't playing baseball, we just had a PE period, and it was just kind of a, you know, do whatever you want. You remember those classes? Weren't those great, those PE classes? You just, you just screw around. It was screw around 101, as I recall, was, was the name of the class. But the, whoever the coach was, he had some kind of wrestling background. I remember a couple times we were just messing around, and then they started talking about wrestling, and he said to somebody, he goes, hey, let me show you some moves. And he showed us a couple of moves. And basically, he said, let me show you some reversals. And he showed, and he showed me a move that I used on my brothers for about the next four or five years. Because usually my brothers, we get into it. My brothers would get me in a headlock, or they'd get me down. And one of my brothers was 6'5 and about 290. And I was, I usually was nice to Mike. But uh, anyway, we'd be messing around. But he showed me reversal, and, and it worked almost every time. One of the things about spiritual warfare, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But we are wrestling, there, there is a spiritual realm that we are wrestling with. Now something, as we read this, these passages on spiritual warfare, we find out that we will be attacked. We find out that Satan is subtle. We find out that he is deceitful. We find out that he is a liar. We find out that he has schemes and that he has methodologies. And here's one of the things that I think happens in spiritual warfare, and we don't realize you see, we don't realize what's going on when it happens. But one of the ways that Satan will attempt to bring us down, and we can even be aware of this passage, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the, the powers, against the principalities, against the spiritual forces of the dark. We're aware there's a spirit world, and that's what we're wrestling against. But if we're not careful as we go through life and find ourselves in certain events, he will pull a reversal on us. And in his subtlety and in his deception, what he will do as we attempt to wrestle against him is that he will pull a reversal on us and suddenly we find ourselves, this is fascinating, we find ourselves not wrestling against him, but somehow he has tricked us and deceived us so that we find ourselves wrestling against the living God and asking ourselves if he's good, if he's sovereign, if his word can be trusted, if his providence will work in our lives. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. I want to show you how this works. I'm sorry? Exodus. Exodus chapter 3. I want to show you how this worked with Moses. We do have a very subtle enemy. And when we get to Exodus chapter 3, Here's what's happened in Moses' life. Exodus 1, 2, 3, and 4. It, uh, it's the Exodus. It's the story of how the children of Israel left Egypt. Uh, you see the Exodus sign right there over the door, all the doors? Exodus, Exodus. It says exit. Well, Exodus means exit. So the book of Exodus is how they exited out of Egypt. The question is, they're Jews. All right? Why are they exiting out of Egypt? Why were they in Egypt in the first place? Well, you go back to chapter 1, and you find out how they... Did I talk about this last week? You find out how they, you read chapter 1 of Exodus, how'd they get into Exodus? How'd they get in there? How did they ingress? You got ingress and egress. They're coming out of Egypt. How'd they get into Egypt? Joseph. Remember his brother sold him into slavery? And then God promoted him after he was tried and tested. Um, there was a famine. His brothers show up to get food. They don't know it's Joseph. He kind of tweaks them a little bit. You know, he's just, you know... He's getting his money's worth out of them. And then finally he reveals himself, and their father comes, and he brings Benjamin, and they all live there in the land of Goshen. Well, what happened is, if you read Exodus 1, it says, as the years went by and the decades went by, 
a pharaoh, a king arose who didn't know Joseph. He didn't know the story. He didn't know the history. You see. All he knew was that there was a lot of Jews in the land living over there in Goshen. And they were, uh, these, people, these, these people were breeding like rabbits. They, these people had kids left and right, and suddenly they did a demographic study, and there were more of them than there were the Egyptians. And this guy said, we better enslave them, or they're going to enslave us. So before you know it, the people of Israel, they're slaves, and they're in Egypt, and they're in there for 430 years. Now what's going to happen is that God is going to deliver them eventually. Oh, by the way, it got so bad, there were so many, there were so many Jews and there were so many uh, Jewish children being born that at a certain point, and you can read about this in Exodus 1 and Exodus 2, is that the king, Pharaoh, said, listen, there's, he said to the birth wives, he said, listen, you, gotta take, you can't let them have boys. If it's a boy, you throw it in the Nile. If it's a girl, you keep her. Well, there was this uh, man and woman, and they met, and they fell in love, and they got married, and she got pregnant, and they had a little boy, and they named the boy Moses. And he was born during this time. Worst possible time to have a son. That's all in Exodus. And in order, she wasn't going to kill that baby, but they fashioned a little, uh, they fashioned a little ark, if you will. Real tiny ark. They fashioned a little waterproof, watertight little raft. And his oldest sister, his older sister Miriam, would take it down, put it on the banks of the Nile in the bulrushes where nobody could see, and she'd keep her eye, and they'd hide him out during the day. But one day, by chance, Pharaoh's daughter came by. There is no chance, is there? One day, by divine appointment, Pharaoh's daughter came by. So how can you say it was divine appointment? Because of Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. If it's true of the king, it's true of the king's daughter. The king's daughter, her heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way. So why did she go there that day? Because God sent her there. And she's looking out there and somebody, hey, look at that little, what is that? There's a little baby in there. It's a little Hebrew baby. It's a little Hebrew boy. And the older sister steps out and she can tell, and she immediately has an affinity and an affection for this little boy. Does she say kill it? No. Why didn't she say kill it? Because God had a work for Moses to do and he hadn't done his work yet and they can't kill you until your work is done. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you might walk in them, and you can't die until your work is done, because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. They can't kill you until your work is done. They may rough you up, they may talk about you at the ice cream social, but they can't kill you. So she, she doesn't say, let's kill the kid. She has an affinity and affection and as she has this affinity in her heart for this little baby who's helpless, the sister comes out and says, would you like me to get one of the Hebrew maidens to take care of this baby? Yes. So she goes and gets her mother, and Moses' mother raises her in the, in the palace of Pharaoh. Is that wild or what? I'll tell you, the craziest things happen by chance. So you know what happens? Uh, Moses lived to be 120 years old. You guys still with me or am I boring you? This is not wild stuff. This is amazing stuff. Moses lived to be 120 years old. The first 40 years of his life, he lived like a king, literally. He lived in the king's palace. You can read a Jewish historian by the name of Flavius Josephus, and he talks about, in fact, flip over to the book of Acts. Flavius Josephus isn't in the book of Acts, but he would add some things, and we get in the book of Acts around Acts 6 or Acts 7, we get a little bit of insight into the life of what happened with Moses when Stephen is making his defense before the Jewish council. You remember Stephen was the first martyr? If you look at, uh, and he's kind of given a history lesson as he's making his defense. And if you look at Acts 7, it says in verse 20, Stephen's making his powerful defense before the Jewish council. And Stephen says, 
720 of Acts. It was at this time that Moses was born. He was lovely in the sight of God. He was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Is that not wild? Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. This is where Josephus talks about where he was educated and how he would have been brilliant in hieroglyphics and in the science of the age. Note this, he was a man of power in words and deeds. Uh, Josephus said that uh, Moses had a tremendous military career on behalf of the Egyptian army, that there was a surprise attack against the, uh, the Egyptian city of Memphis. The Ethiopians had come up and taken it, and, and Moses did an all-night march with his army, came, ambushed them, surprised them, and took the city back. Um, he was a man of power in words and in deeds. Watch this. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. Now, here's what happened, just real quick. Moses uh, has this unbelievable upbringing. All of his cousins, his aunts, his uncles, his brothers, his sisters, all of them are slaves. But he's living the good life in the palace. You know, he's got an Egyptian express card. He's got an Egyptian chariot. He's got, uh, he's going to the best schools. I mean, he's got it made. You know, spring break, he goes, you know, somewhere and does everything, and they're, they're slaves. And at some point, it begins to dawn on him that God didn't put him in there just for his own personal comfort. And he begins to put this and this together. And you know what becomes clear to him? It becomes clear to him that God has put them there because he is the one that has the ability, that has the gifts, that has the education, that has the military training to get those people out of there and deliver them. Was he right about that? Yes, he was. But somewhere around the age of 40, he tries to pull off the exodus by himself. Look what happens. Verse 24, actually 23. When he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him. He wasn't supposed to do that. He steps in to defend this slave who's being beaten up by this Egyptian taskmaster. He defended him, took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. He kills this Egyptian. Now watch this. He supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. It made sense to him. Did it make sense to them? No. Because it says, but they did not understand. He had it figured out. Was he right that he was going to be a deliverer? Yes. He was just a little wrong on the timing. He was 40 years off. And you read the following verses, and you find out that suddenly, instead of being for him, they were against him, and not only were the people against him, Pharaoh was against him, and he had, run, and he had to run to his life, verse 29. At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Why did he go to Midian? Because nobody in their right mind would go to Midian. That's why he went to Midian. He got as far away from Pharaoh and Egypt. He went into as a remote place on the face of the earth that he could find so that Pharaoh wouldn't kill him. The first 40 years of his life, he lived in grandeur. He lived in a palace. He had the best of all worlds. He was a, a stunning man. He was a brilliant man. He was a leader. He had the accolades and applause of people. And the next 40 years of his life, he lived in the middle of a desert trying to eke out a living with a bunch of stinking sheep. Quite a change. First 40 years of his life in the palace. Next 40 years of his life, he's in the desert. Go back to Exodus. You guys still with me? Where am I going? Genesis, Exodus. Okay. Now, chapter 3. Gosh, that clock is moving. One of you guys up there, just pull that plug on there, will you? 
Now Moses, I'm in Exodus 3. Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. He's just doing what he's done for 40 years, every, every single day. He's gotten up, and you know what? He's had nothing to look forward to. He's just been bored. He, you know what he's doing? He's just surviving. And you know what else I think? I think he's got a lot of regrets. I think every day of his stinking life for 40 years in that desert, he looked back on that day when he tried to pull off the exodus. He was the one guy who had a shot at delivering those people, and he took it and he blew it. Do you think he had any vain regrets? Do you have anything in your life that you look back and you wish, you just wish you could have done it differently? He did. He did. He blew it. And he knew he'd never get a chance again. Forty years, he's by himself, he's obscure, he's got his wife, he's got a couple kids, and he's got his father-in-law, and he's just doing this sheep thing and this, uh, you know, goat thing. And then verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. I've got to move quickly. But God tells him in verse 5, God calls him in verse 4, Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Man, this is, hey, this, this, this is a different day. This wasn't on his daytimer when he got up that morning. Watch this, verse 10. Therefore come now and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Now watch this. Now I want to say something to you. As we read this account, you, you've got two, you've got God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you've got Moses, okay? Also know this. <laughs> you've got the cosmocrat bureaucratic minions of Satan all around this situation because they know that something significant is taking place and what I want you to notice is I want you to notice uh, I want you to notice the response of Moses to the plan of God for his life I want you to notice how somehow the enemy does a reversal on Moses and gets Moses to wrestle not with Satan and not with his bureaucratic demons, but somehow he in this situation has deceived and twisted the truth in Moses' mind so that he now has Satan uh, he has Moses in a reversal, and he has Moses wrestling not against him, but he has Moses wrestling and contending with Almighty God. I want you to note number one. Moses wrestles with the plan of God. What's the plan? I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to stand before Pharaoh, and I'm going to use you, and you're going to lead those people out. Verse 11, look at Moses' response. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Was he asking that question 40 years ago? He wasn't asking, who am I? He was enamored with who he was. Look at my gifts, look at my training, look at my capability. Look at all. You know, there's a principle here, and the principle is this. God takes, <laughs> if you ever ask God to use you, know this. God takes strong men and he crushes them. God takes strong, confident, ambitious men who are type A personalities and he breaks them down. And all your dreams and all your hopes and all your plans 
And everything you thought your life was going to be, what God does is he demolishes it. And you look around at where you are in life and you say, this is not what I signed up. And you never saw it coming. And, and you actually at times are, on the, are at the place of despair. You're fighting off despair. Because you don't know what happened. You know, you, this, is, this is not what you envisioned. This was not your plan. But here you are. It's not anything at all what you, what you dreamed of, what you thought was going to happen. And you were following the Lord. To Paul, who was another type A, strong personality, leader type, God said, he gave him a thorn in the flesh. Paul asked him three times, is it 2 Corinthians 12? He asked, he asked the Lord three times to remove it. The Lord wouldn't remove it because the Lord said, my power is perfected in weakness. So God takes strong men, he breaks them down, and he makes them weak. Ray Stedman used to say, resurrection power always works best in a graveyard. God has to take strong men, and he has to make them weak. And when you're that weak, here's what happens. When God breaks you down and you're that weak, here's what happens. You think you will always be weak, and you think you will never have a life again, and you think God will never use you, and you'll never experience the blessing of God. That's where Moses was here. He had taken so many shots. He had had so many things go wrong in his life. He was absolutely, he, he had lost, he, he had an abundance of confidence, he had lost it all. He used to have a perspective that God was great and God would help him, but you know what, he, he had to be disappointed when, when the events turned out the way that he did. And he had to have vain regrets, and you know, the enemy just used that in his head and played with it and twisted it. You know, is God really good? Can God really be trusted? How could God allow this to happen to you? Da, 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 da. You've had it happen to you, haven't you? So here's Moses. God says, I want you to go back and I want you to do this. And, and you know what you see? You see stubbornness instead of surrender. He's wrestling with God. God says, I want you to do this. And he goes, why, hey, why would you want me? Who am I that I should go? He's being stubborn to the plan of God. It is unwise to wrestle and be stubborn when it comes to the things of God. The place of wisdom is this, is to say, not my will, but thine be done. You don't want to wrestle God because you're going to get hurt. You don't want to fight God. You're wrestling the wrong individual. Here's number two. Look at verses 13 and 14. He wrestles with the character of God. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers have sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? Let me tell you why that's important. Old Testament, names were significant. Uh, a name represented the deity's character. They would name children in the Old Testament very carefully because the name had a character qualification. The name had a character aspect to it. So what does he say? He says, I'm going to the sons of Israel. I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, now here you go, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This name was so holy, the Jews wouldn't even say it. Uh, we, would, we would call this Jehovah, or we would call it Yahweh. There are two aspects to the character that is represented in this name of God, of Yahweh. The first one is this. God says, you tell them Yahweh. Oh, by the way, when Jesus was before the Pharisees and they took up stones to kill him, why did they do it? Because he had said before Abraham, he said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. They said, you're not even 30 years old. He said, before Abraham was... Right here, I am. That means two things. Oh, and they took up stones to kill him. Why? He made himself equal with God. Which he should have done because that's who he is. There are two, two things, two character traits, two character attributes to this name. The first one is this. The first one is self-existent. I am the self-existent God. I have always been. I am not created. I have always been. I spoke time 
into, into existence. I spoke the world, Colossians 2. I think we were there last week, but we're taking another trip. Colossians chapter 2, speaking of Jesus, verse 16. For, uh, it's actually Colossians 1, 16. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities. You study histories, you see thrones, you see kingdoms, you see political leaders. They were all created for him and by him, for his glory. That's the past. You look at the future. Stuff's going to happen. You read the book of Revelation, you read Daniel. There's going to be some bad stuff coming down the pike. There's going to be an antichrist who has determined that. Almighty God has. There's going to be a one-world government. There's going to be a one-world financial system. Gosh, the New York Stock Exchange was just bought out by the German Stock Exchange. Oh, that concerns me. You ought to give glory to God. Because it's all being set up. And it's part of the plan of God, which Jesus designed before, before the foundations of the world. Don't let that freak you out. Don't soil your depends. Give glory to God. He's running the show here. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. You say, my gosh, it looks like things are getting worse and worse. Yes, they are, because he's going to come back and set it right. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. All the mullahs, all the... Uh, <laughs> they're all going to bow and say, Jesus is Lord. Is that not great? The whole world's going to say it. But it's all it's got to get in the pit before it's going to happen. And in the interim, God takes care of us. You say, well, I might go somewhere in, on my boat and take Bibles. And I might get killed. Yeah, you might. <laughs> and then where are you? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Even when Satan wins, he loses. So those four people were murdered yesterday. They had Bibles. They were going to distribute Bibles, and they got murdered. Oh, we won. You didn't win. They're in heaven with Almighty Christ, and the blood of the martyrs is seed. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Yeah, I was watching the news. It's all, it's all falling apart. No, it isn't. He's holding it together. He's holding it together. It'd fall apart if he wasn't holding it together. There'd be anarchy and chaos everywhere. There'd be Egyptian riots and chumping Midlothian. Everywhere in the world. I, yeah, I know, that made no sense. But I'm telling you, there'd be anarchy and chaos everywhere if he wasn't holding it together. He puts boundaries on how far it can go. Well, it's going to Indiana, it's going to Ohio. Okay, then he, then he said they could go that far. Whatever's going on, whatever is going on, and you know, it's interesting, you, you, have, these, you have these rebellion, what you want, democracy, we want all that. Okay, good, good. The problem is, you've got the powers of the world, the powers of darkness that come in and rob it and twist it. Right? Why am I sitting down? I have no clue. All right. He's the self-existent God. Oh, here's the second thing. In that name, Yahweh, he's not only self-existent, he's self-sufficient. He needs nothing. He doesn't need a thing. Doesn't need a thing from you. In fact, he doesn't need a thing, but you need everything. And he is a self-sufficient God that will give you what you need at the moment you need it. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. You tell him that's who this God is that I'm sending. But see, what is he doing? Satan's got him in a reversal, and he's questioning the character of God because in the past he was hurt and didn't understand why God allowed the things to happen to him that did, did happen. Satan will always miss with your mind about the goodness of God. But Psalm 119.68 says the Lord is good and does good. Doesn't mean that hard things don't happen to believers. But God's never the author of evil. But God uses evil. He'll use that evil and turn it for your good if you'll trust him. 
He's the self-existent God. He is the self-sufficient God. If you go back to uh, Exodus 3, he even shows him, beginning in verse... Uh, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you, you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And then the show of self-sufficiency, beginning with verse 15 down to verse 22, he tells Moses exactly what's going to happen when he goes to let the people go. And that's exactly what happened. Even to the point of saying, when you finally leave, you're going to plunder the Egyptians and take their gold and silver. And that's exactly what happened. Because he is the self-sufficient God who knows all things. And it's planned all things, including your future. <laughs> and see, that's why you can't despair. If some of you guys are here tonight and you're in despair and your life is falling apart, you, you, listen, listen. You've got to get Psalm 42 in your head, man. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in despair within me? We, well, if it's because my life's all messed up, and I, you know, I've messed up, or this is falling apart, or this. Yeah, all right, all right, hold on. Why are you in despair on my soul, and why are you cast down within me? And then it says this, hope in God. For I shall again praise him for the help of his saving acts. Moses thought he was finished. He's about to see God do something unbelievable in his life. Have you ever, how many of you guys have ever been in a spot where you thought you were finished and you thought you were done and you were verging on hopelessness and God came through for you and delivered you? Let me see your hands. So you guys are here tonight depressed, you look at that. If he does it for them, why wouldn't he do it for you? If you'll call on his name and trust him. In, in, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, he struggles with, he wrestles with the power of God. Verse 4. And I got four zeros staring me in the face back there, and I'm ignoring them. <laughs> then Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? He said, a staff. He said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. That's what you call power. He takes a wood staff, and he turns it into a serpent. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. Now, can I ask you something? Is it smart to pick up a snake by the tail? That's, that's not normally what you want to do. By the way, can I tell you this? In your life, there will be times God will have you do something that makes no sense. And there will be times in your life God will force you into a situation and you have, it just doesn't make any sense. But he's going to show you his power. Stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. He stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That's the power of God. See, he was questioning the power of God. And then he has him do the thing with his hand, and it's leprous, and it's not leprous. It's the power of God. But see, he's questioning the power of God because Satan had put him in reverse. Sometimes we're in a situation, you say, I'll never get out of this. My life will never change. It'll always be the same. I've been in this ministry. I've been doing this. There's no fruit. You know, I'm defeated. It just seems like I'm overwhelmed. Well, you know what? You just stay there and you just be faithful. And you keep wrestling. And you keep reading the Word of God and putting it inside your heart and your mind. And you keep chewing on it and just chewing on it and just chewing on it. And then you digest it and then you bring it up again and you're chewing on it some more. You become an Angus. That's all those suckers do. They eat, they chew, they swallow, they bring it up. Some of you guys do that. You've done it for years. <laughs> do it with the Word of God. Read it, chew on it, digest it, and then bring it up again. You just keep, you just keep pondering the Word of God. And what he's saying here in, 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 in that section he wrestles the power of God. And then, and then in verses 10 through 13 of 4, he wrestles with the word of God. Moses said to the Lord, please, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor times past. Remember Acts 7? It said he was a man of power in words. But he was so far gone, he had forgotten he was a man of power with words. He'd gotten so far down. You think God gave him a speech impediment? I don't know if God gave him a speech impediment. I just know that. I, I don't know. It doesn't say it could have happened. But he just, uh, he used to be powerful in words and deeds, Stephen said. 
But now he says, I'm not a man who's powerful in words. Actually, you were. But he's been completely drained of all his self-reliance. He says, I'm slow of speech, slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, who made man's mouth? Who made him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. See, I'll tell you what to say. And even here, what is he doing? He's questioning the word of God. He's questioning the power of God. Uh, how did Satan get him in a reverse? He got him in reverse through making him question God because of his past defeats, because of his past disappointments, because of his current situation that was an absolute calamity and a mess. And he also got him in a reverse by making him look at his future and all he could see was anxiety and worry and doubt about the goodness of God. Satan still works that way today. Doesn't he? If he did it with Moses, why wouldn't he do it with us? This was written for a reason, guys. Can I tell you kind of what the bottom line is here? It seems to me that the bottom line always is when we find ourselves in difficult situations and we find ourselves in places we don't want to be and our lives are a wreck and there's calamity in our lives, God's always forcing me back to this place. Will you trust me? And will you surrender to me? And will you let me do my work in your life. That's where it always goes. I read a quote from Spurgeon last week about death. Spurgeon said, he who dies daily dies easily. When you're on your deathbed, if you've had a history of dying to self and surrendering to Christ, your deathbed's not going to be a huge issue. But if you're stubborn and if you're fighting him, listen, you don't want to wrestle the wrong opponent. He's not your opponent. He's not against you. He's for you. Psalm 56, 9. This I know, that God is for me. And he can be trusted no matter where you are. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the power of your word, for broken hearts that are here, for guys who are crushed, that are guys, for guys that are verging on despair, let them know that you are with them. And if they'll turn completely and surrender and quit fighting you and lay down their arms and say, Lord Jesus, I trust you with my whole life. I give you my life all over again. I surrender to you. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. And we will see it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.